I want to continue the series that we began a number of weeks ago where we began looking at a number of the Psalms and I've selected a few of the Psalms that seem to speak uh, and give voice to the kinds of uh, prayers that we'd want to pray at a time like this. And as I said at the start, all the Psalms, being the prayer book of the church, provide prayers for all kinds of many, many different occasions in life and experiences and emotions and the things that we go through in life. But there are a number of Psalms that speak so pertinently and perfectly to our present circumstance. And I want to open up with you Psalm 46 this morning, Psalm 46. I'd encourage you to open a Bible if you have one, have it open on your lap as we, as we uh, look at this Psalm. It's also the text of the Psalm is in the description below the video. So you're welcome to just scroll down and have a look at that. This particular Psalm has been um, sort of adapted uh, into song and Martin Luther famously wrote his um, great hymn, which is called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it was described as the battle hymn of the Reformation. If anyone knew what it was to engage in spiritual warfare, um, Martin Luther was that man. And he, he experienced a great deal of um, setback in life and of danger and all kinds of things that he went through. And he latched on to this particular psalm and its meaning for his own circumstance. And that's why it's a psalm that's very interesting to us. But I want to let me let me read the psalm and then we'll we'll get into it. It says, uh, "To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song." Many of the psalms have a title like this, but this is how it goes: "God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear that the earth gives way, that the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling." Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I want to take that line from the end of the psalm where he says, be still and know that I am God. And Consider the whole of the psalm through that particular lens, that invitation or that command from God to us to be still and know that I am God. And and try and understand better what this psalm has to say on this concept of what it means to be still in, in his presence. And the reason I want to address this particular idea is because I think we're living in a in an ironic circumstance in the sense that if we look around us. There has never been more stillness to my memory, of course, in the city in which we live. Being in London, if you're still in the city, you'll know it's what a striking thing, how absolutely still the city feels in contrast to what it's normally like in the rush and the hurry that normally characterizes this great metropolis. And yet at the same time, even though there is immense stillness around us, Stillness is the very thing that may be lacking in our own hearts because, of course, stillness is not just a state of the circumstances that we're in. It is primarily a state of the heart. It's primarily to do with your 
um, the, the, the kind of the way that you are feeling and thinking and what's going on in your interior life. And so this is the irony of the situation. As the world grows more still, our hearts are in somewhat of turmoil. And this is why I wanted to think about this aspect of stillness. I want us then to think about what he means by this command to be still and know. What does it mean to be still? And we can rule out a couple of options just right from the start. He is not talking here about a state of emptiness. If you were to go into outer space, space would be remarkably still. There's nothing for endless leagues and miles. And yet, of course, the psalmist isn't speaking about emptiness. He's speaking about a stillness which is in the presence of God. So it's quite different from an, a state of emptiness. And neither is he speaking about a, a kind of emptiness of mind. Sometimes um, the concept of Zen has been described as no-mindedness. And I don't think that that's at all what he's speaking of here. As far as I can tell, it's possible for a cow in a field to experience a measure of Zen when they're just munching on the grass. And he's not talking about that at all. Because what the psalmist is speaking of is a very alert full apprehension of something uh, to do with God and the knowledge of God. So this means that we're talking about something that's very unique to the experience of the person who has encountered God or who knows God. It's something that you cannot necessarily know if you don't yourself have a relationship with God. This stillness of heart cannot be experienced if you don't know God and have not come to realize his greatness in some way. But of course, just because you may be a Christian, just because you may be a believer does not mean that you have the stillness in your heart. The psalm, after all, is written from the perspective of a believer primarily. And God's invitation, be still and know that I am God, is speaking to the believer who may well have forgotten uh, what he knows about God or may well have taken his eyes off of God. So what we are speaking about here then is something that is attainable for all of us. Something that you may need to step into in a new way today. And the question is, well, how? How can you experience this stillness that the psalmist speaks of? And the answer is that it has to do with contemplation upon or the revelation of or deeper knowledge of God himself that so transforms your inner life, so changes you from the inside that your experience of life will be very different I want then to understand what this psalm has to say about this aspect of what it means to be still. You'll have noticed that the psalm falls into three sections. Each of them ended with this word sila, which is thought to mean a kind of pause and reflect. And therefore, each element of the psalm teaches us a different aspect of what the stillness is. And I want to unpack them for you. The first then is this, that the stillness that he's speaking of is the absence of fear. It's a stillness is the absence of fear. And this comes across in the first few verses where he says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in, t in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, I want us to begin just by acknowledging the problem of fear before we can consider what this psalm has to say about it. Because the thing about fear is that it, it can masquerade in our lives and hide itself in different forms in our daily experience. For, for years, I would say I was not conscious of this problem in my own life. 
And it began to dawn on me a number of years ago that I was, um, I kind of had a default setting, I would say, toward anxiety. I don't mean a life-controlling anxiety, but a kind of low-level anxiety, especially if I felt overwhelmed by responsibilities and by the things that I had to do and accomplish or deal with. And it then gave birth to a number of behaviors or symptoms in my life that were not good and not pleasant. And it took me a long time, I would say years, to really understand that that was my problem because I had a a notion of what anxiety looks like. And to me, it looked like, you know, somebody with a deep furrows on their forehead, gnawing their fingernails, um, kind of white-eyed in the, in the presence of, of difficult circumstances. And I thought, I don't look like that. I'm not an anxious person. But of course, I hadn't really fully appreciated or understood that anxiety was playing a significant part in my interior life. And that that acknowledgement enabled me to then face it, enabled me to to make steps towards dealing with it or dealing with it on a regular basis whenever it rears its ugly head. And I say this to you because I think that so many of us experience fears that are under the surface, but that it display themselves or reveal themselves in different ways according to our temperament or circumstances or personalities. So for some people, fear is there, but it's in the form of stress, overwork, this kind of effort to to achieve something. But really, the underlying motive, if you really boil it down, is always fear. The fear of failure, the fear of what if I don't do this, that, or the other. For other people, fear uh, comes out in physiological symptoms. You may not be aware of what's happening in your emotional life. And so few of us are really alert to what's happening in our hearts. But the fear comes out in your body, it comes out in skin conditions, it comes out in high blood pressure, it can come out with migraines. There's all kinds of ways that fear can reveal itself through your body, telling you that you are, you are wrestling with this great monster of fear in your heart, in your soul. For other people, it comes out in behaviors like um, being overly controlling. If, you can't, you know, if, you, if you're feeling afraid in your circumstances, the way you deal with it is going into overdrive and controlling every element of your situation and circumstance. For other people, it's just that awareness, awareness of anxiety or a sense of panic. Or for many, and I think this is very common, it's diving into the hole. It's escapism. You know, the way we avoid fear is by switching off, by numbing ourselves to the realities of life. So I say all this because I suspect that for many, um, as you consider your own life and your, your soul, you're not necessarily aware that fear is a problem. But of course, it is a problem. And it comes out in all kinds of different ways. Now, why then do we experience fear? Why is this a persistent, chronic problem in our lives? And again, I think we need to deal with the negatives. I don't think it's because, I don't think we can attribute it to weakness. Very often fear is associated with, with weakness. But if you say that fear is weakness, well, all that creates is a, a tendency to want to avoid the appearance of, e- of weakness by wearing the mask of bravado and fake courage. And of course, if you associate fear with weakness, I, I don't think that's particularly helps us deal with the root of the issue. Nor can we necessarily say that fear is a sinful tendency of the human heart. There are moments when you can definitely perceive that sin is rooted in unbelief in your heart and therefore is a sinful response to what's going on in your situation. But if we, I think it doesn't help us deal with the complexity of life if we just label things in that way necessarily. Now, the surprising answer that I want to give to you on the question of why we experience fear and why this is a chronic problem 
is because it is perfectly rational and reasonable in view of the realities of life to react with fear. That there are plenty of good reasons to be afraid. That's the, the bad news. And you can see this even in the way the psalmist speaks. He says, of course, we will not fear. But listen carefully to what he says. He, he, he lists four those. He says, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. He's saying that there are plenty of excellent reasons to be afraid right now. From his situation, he looks out on, and it, the language that he's using of what's happening in the world around him is really the language of decreation. If you read the creation narrative in Genesis 1, one of the first things God does is he puts water in its place. And remember that the seas, for the Hebrews, spoke of a kind of restless evil. But God puts the seas in their place and he separates the sea from the land. And so he brings order out of chaos. But what the Hebrew psalmist is now describing to us is the reversal of that creation, decreation, or something like the end of the world. He's saying that there are there's so much bad stuff that happens around us that it feels like the end of the world and it may be true on an individual level the end of your world but it can be true at a global level also i've been reading a book recently called the precipice by a a man who teaches philosophy in oxford called toby ord and the book is really an argument to to kind of help us wake up to the reality that there are very many threats to the existence of humanity some of them are beyond our control Things like asteroids hitting the earth or solar, uh, the sun you know, burning up or whatever, which, th- these kinds of things. And some of them are through the behavior of humankind that we might accidentally push the end humanity button without realizing that we're doing it. And so we go through all the – the whole book is about the ways we can destroy ourselves essentially. I, I don't know whether he makes cheery company down the pub, but it doesn't make good bedtime reading. I will tell you that. But the point is, he's saying, listen, we need, to, we need to step up and wake up and realize the various threats that we are facing as humanity and be conscious of them or else we can't deal with them. And I say this because I want to underline for you that there are many reasons to be afraid in life. In fact, your capacity to fear is part of what makes you different from the animals. Animals are afraid, but they cannot imagine all the ways that they might die. They can't project into the future all the possible ways in which they might suffer. And of course, as humans, we have that capacity. We have that imagination. It's part of us being made in the image of God that we have the ability to do that. And if we truly contemplate the badness of the world around us, fear is a perfectly reasonable and rational reaction to the situation around us. And the the reason I stress this, of course, is because it underlines even more what a remarkable, even unnatural thing it is to be at peace. If this was just attainable by anyone, it wouldn't be a gift from God. But the fact that this peace is something supernatural, something that can be said to be in the spite of circumstances, tells us all the more, underlines all the more, why this is something that we have to come to God in order to receive. And this is what the psalm tells us. He says, therefore we'll not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved. He says, in spite of every reason to be afraid, the believer treats God as their refuge and strength and has this remarkable, supernatural, unnatural, perhaps irrational fear, lack of fear or peace, I should say. And you can see this going on in the New Testament. You see it in the life of Christ himself. 
there's a moment in, in the Gospels where the disciples, who remember some of them are seasoned fishermen, they're caught in a great storm on the Sea of Galilee, and even they are afraid for their lives. They're deeply afraid. They have every reason to be afraid in that situation. And where do we find Jesus? We say, it says he was in the stern of the boat asleep on a cushion. Everyone else is absolutely terrified. The boat is reeling and rocking and being thrown around by the waves. And Jesus is so perfectly at peace that he's asleep. And on the surface of it, of course, what we're looking at here is something that is in a, ra- in a rational form of peace because it is despite the circumstances. It's very much, in, in a sense, in denial of the situation, it looks like anyway. And Paul also describes this kind of peace in Philippians 4 when he's speaking to the anxious. He says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we're not speaking here about a peace which is a natural phenomenon. We're speaking here about something which is very much unnatural, which is supernatural, and which in one sense can be described as irrational because it submits to a higher rationality, it submits to a higher reason the reality of God, the reality of God as our refuge and our strength. You can live in this world aware of the circumstances you're in and you should rightly be afraid. Or you can live in this world more conscious of the reality of God and of his power. Be still, he says, and know that I am God. And then you will say with the psalmist, I will not fear, though the earth gives way. I will not fear, though everything around me be destroyed. I will not fear, I'm more aware of God than of the problems that are facing me. This stillness then is, first of all, an absence of fear. It's secondly, and this may surprise you, but this stillness is a sense of gladness. It's a sense of joy or a sense of happiness. And this is what he goes on to describe in the second verse. He says that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I want to read the rest of that just to help us with understanding the context. He says, As a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. This is Jerusalem. God is in the midst of her, in the midst of the city. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. What is he speaking about here? Well, the commentators say that He's describing a situation in which the city of Jerusalem is under siege, in which it's surrounded by enemy forces. And of course, if you ask, is that a time in which you should ever experience happiness or gladness? And the answer is obviously no. The only way of surviving a siege is to stockpile. We know a thing or two about that, but to stockpile immense amounts of goods. Because there are two ways that a siege ends typically. It's either when food runs out, Or before that, if the water supply runs out, if there is no fresh water. Back in the the first century, um, there was a a standoff between the Jews and the Romans. And there's a place just next to the Dead Sea called Masada. It's a hill fortress and it's almost impregnable. It's on the top of a very high, steep rock with a flat top. And they they built the fortress, and this fortress was occupied by some uh, rebel Jews in the first century under the Roman Empire, who occupied this fortress against, in defiance of the Roman Empire. And when eventually, and they they were there for some years, when eventually the Roman governor decided, okay, now's the time, we're going to take them out. 
they laid a siege around this, this fortress. And the Jews who were at the top of the fortress would pour water over the walls of Masada and down the sheer cliff faces just as a way to taunt the Romans and to kind of tell them, look, we have plenty of water here. They had these underground cisterns that were fed by fresh water. And so they had no shortage of water. They couldn't be uh, drawn out through thirst, at least. And this helps give us a little bit of context to what the psalm is saying, in the sense when he says that there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He's saying that even if the city is under siege, we have this constant supply of fresh water, which makes us happy in defiance against the threats and the enemies that are just outside the walls. Now, it's clear, however, if you know anything about Jerusalem and maybe you've seen the city, it's clear that he cannot be describing the literal situation of the city of Jerusalem. And the reason why I say that is because Jerusalem had one water source. It had a spring called the Gihon Spring, which is down in the Kidron Valley. And it filled the pool of Siloam from which all of Jerusalem got its water supply. There are no rivers, in other words, in Jerusalem. There are no rivers particularly near Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not fed by rivers or by streams. So then what on earth is the psalmist talking about when he describes Jerusalem as being fed and made glad by the stream. And there are a number of ways that we can see this in scripture, clues as to what he's talking about. But the, the dominant idea is that in a number of places in the Bible, the river is, is said to be sort of significant of the presence of God. There's a place in the beginning of Ezekiel 47 where Ezekiel sees a vision and he sees water that was coming out from the temple below the steps of the temple and flowing out from Jerusalem and eventually becoming a great torrent or river that touches the nations. And this is also how the Bible ends at the very end and the last chapter, Revelation chapter 22. It says that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. So it comes from God's throne, this river, and he says it flows out through the city. And he says on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. So we see the river as a primarily associated with God himself and with his presence and therefore with him being the source of sustenance and of nourishment to the nations. That's the picture in the scripture. So when he says here, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He's describing Jerusalem under siege. He's not talking about a literal or physical river that existed in Jerusalem. He's talking about God himself in her midst. He's talking about the spiritual reality of knowing joy from God, the river that makes glad the city of God. The temple was there. God was there. God gave them joy. Now, what does this mean for you? The psalmist is trying to help us understand that there are basically two ways you can get joy. You can get your joy from the things around you, the things that you enjoy in life, the things that are part of your life experience and your circumstances. But if you imagine yourself like a city, what happens when you're under siege? What happens when those things run out or they disappoint you or you get bored with them or they're taken away from you? What happens when they are cut off from you? Does that also mean that your joy ends? Is your joy so dependent upon circumstances that a siege is taken in a metaphorical sense will rob you of joy, will render you miserable, will destroy your life essentially? 
That's one way of living. But he describes this other way of living in which your joy is not fundamentally rooted in the things of your life, the things around you, the circumstances around you, so that even if you're under siege, even if, in other words, these things run out or are taken away from you or removed from your life before their time too soon, he says this joy inside comes from the presence of God, which makes you invulnerable to the experiences of disappointment, to the experiences of suffering, to the experiences of setback and of siege. Now, this is what Jesus describes as being the life of the Christian. It says in John 7 that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus is describing that existential desire that exists in every human heart. He's saying that all of us have within us the awareness of a thirst. In other words, a longing for true and lasting joy. And some of you have been trying to satisfy that joy with all kinds of earthly things. And the problem is right now you're, in, you're under siege. And with those things taken away from you, so is your joy taken away from you. Nothing on this earth can give you lasting joy because nothing on this earth is permanent and guaranteed. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come to me and drink. And then he says this, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John tells us now he said this about the Holy Spirit, the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive The Lord Jesus Christ is saying that part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to believe in him, is that you no longer seek the answer to your joy. You no longer seek to quench your thirst with the things of this world which are temporary and which can be taken away from you. And if you're experiencing misery right now in your present situation of lockdown, there's a very good chance that it's because you were depending on all these things to give you joy. If anyone comes to me, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Jesus says. And out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. It's God himself. He is our joy. Therefore, be still. In those same lines, the psalmist does talk about Jerusalem being delivered. He says, God will help her when morning dawns. But listen. Deliverance is not the reason why Jerusalem is happy. Jerusalem's happy before that happens, because they have God. This stillness then is the absence of fear. It's also this experience of joy that comes from God in your life. Here's the last thing. This stillness is a sense of awe. It's a sense of awe. Let me read you this last verse. It says, come, come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The the God of Jacob is our fortress. I wonder if you have ever experienced real awe in your life. What that, what can induce awe. And I don't look I think this word obviously has been somewhat cheapened in our modern usage because awe is not just admiration. 
You, know, you can experience admiration for a good TV show or your wife's cooking or something like that, but that's not awe. There's no comment on my wife's cooking. But you could, that's not the same thing. You can exp- it's not the same thing as excitement. A lot of people have sat next to me in the passenger seat of my car and said that they feared for their life. And that certainly induced a sense of excitement, but it's not the same thing as awe. Awe is something that is really limited to a deep sense of reverence mixed with fear, an overwhelming sense of wonder that very often makes you want to be totally silent. The Bible tells us in quite a few places, actually, that the presence of God induces this sense of awe in the lives of people. You have the, the presence of God for Isaiah when he's in the temple and he sees a vision of, of what he describes as the Lord. And it seems to be that he's seeing the Lord Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate form before he became a man. And Isaiah's response is this silence. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In other words, it's like he's falling down, and he feels more and more the sense that he cannot speak, because whatever comes out of his mouth cannot possibly be voiced or uttered in the presence of this sovereign Lord. You see something similar going on in Exodus 14 when the nation of Israel is on the banks of the Red Sea and they're being chased by the host of uh, the Egyptians behind them and they're afraid. But God's word comes to them and says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. The power of God, in other words, will be so present and so awesome that you will not speak. One of the most powerful visions of this or glimpses of this we see is in the life of Job. The book of Job is a difficult read. It's, it's, it's wrestling with the problem of unbelievable suffering in the life of one particular man. And towards the end of the book, as there's been a lot of philosophizing among these friends around why God has allowed this to happen to this man, God himself speaks. The presence of God comes in. The word of God comes in. It says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In other words, there's no light here because you're all speaking ignorantly. Then he speaks to Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And as God's voice is, is, is describing to Job his immense and immeasurable power, Job is struck to the heart. And what's his response? His response is that he realizes he must be silent. He says, behold, I am of small account. In other words, I'm I'm not worth much. What shall I answer for you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, when I contemplate how awesome you are, O God, the only proper response is to be totally silent. Now, this is what the psalm is talking about. He invites us, he says, come, behold the works of the Lord. And what he particularly wants us to see is 
the work of God in the span of history. Now, what would you see if you understood what God was doing in history? What would it, how would it change your vision? How would it change your understanding? And I think the answer would be that things make sense for the first time. You know that experience when you were a child of maybe being in a crowd, like on bonfire night, and all you can see is the backs of people's legs. And maybe a kind adult, maybe one of your parents, lifted you on their shoulders so that you had sight. And you could see above the heads all around you. And then you had, and in being able to see, everything looked different. I was, it's quite touching to read some of the um, some quotes from various astronauts who were on the early Apollo missions who went into space and for the first time saw with human eyes the world from the outside looking in. I wanted to read to you a couple of those quotes because they really helped me explain what we're describing here. Here's one from James Irwin, an Apollo astronaut. He says, as we got further and further away, the earth diminished in size. Finally, it shrank to the size of a marble, the most beautiful you can imagine. And that beautiful, warm, living object looked so fragile, so delicate, that if you touched it with a finger, it would crumble and fall apart. Then he adds this line at the end. Having seen the world from the outside, having seen what a beautiful and fragile object it appears from space, he says this. Seeing this has to change a man. In other words, he could not remain the same James Irwin who went up in the Apollo craft when he came back down again. He was a changed man forever. That glimpse of the earth from the outside looking in changed his perspective on everything. And similarly, Frank Borman, another Apollo astronaut, said this. He said, the view of the earth from the moon fascinated me. A small disk, 240,000 miles away, Raging nationalistic interests, famines, wars, pestilence, don't show from that distance. And I think this helps us understand a little bit what the psalm is talking about here. When, of course, the context is of all kinds of chaos, the decreation of the world, the siege of Jerusalem, the suffering of mankind, and then the invitation is come, behold the works of the Lord. What do you see? when you see things from God's perspective? Well, the answer is you have, perspe- you have his perspective. Some of the things you see are the bad things that happen under his sovereign hand. He says how he, how he has brought desolations on the earth. How under God's sovereignty we see things that confuse us. We also see the good things that God is bringing about. He says he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And all of it leading to one ultimate aim in the plan of God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the earth, in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. In other words, look, if we are sat in our present cultural moment, wrestling with our personal circumstances and things that we wish were different, or wrestling with what's happening on a global scale and thinking, what's going on here? It's rather like you're the child on the ground. All you can see is the backs of people's legs. You cannot possibly understand what's happening. But step up, get on the shoulders, maybe go further, go higher, go into space, look back down, see with the eyes that God sees. And what do you see? He says, you see that everything 
the bad and the good, every single thing that's happening in history is leading towards the great end that God will be exalted in the earth. And you ask the question, well, in what way will God be exalted? And the Bible tells us he will be exalted in the preeminence and the supremacy of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the end to which all of history is leading, the bad and the good. Everything is bent on that ultimate purpose that God has. And I take this from a place like Philippians 2. There are other scriptures we could read, but I think this is the clearest. Where Paul has described Christ's own personal journey from the right hand of the throne of God into human form and then lower, lower still as he died upon the cross. And how through his humility and his suffering and his obedience for you and for me that he would die in our place, God then lifts him up. And he lifts him up and he says, Paul says about Christ that God has highly exalted him. It's the same word, isn't it, that we see in the psalm. He's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, Ultimately, this stillness that we're describing is the sense of awe that you experience, that you feel in your bones when you worship Christ, when you understand his goodness and his lordship and his authority and that he is in control of all things and that all things are ultimately leading to this end that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What Paul gives us there, in fact, is the definition of a Christian. I want to remind you of that if you are a Christian. A Christian is someone who bends the knee and confesses with the mouth that Jesus is Lord. And it may be the case that your emotions betray you, that you have forgotten the Lordship of Jesus, and that your life is in no way characterized by this stillness, because you are not worshipping, because you're not looking at the sun. I want to remind you of this, that this is the calling and the duty of the Christian, but I also want to hold this out as an offering to those of you who are not Christian. It may be the case that you felt that certain things in your life were things that you could depend upon, and right now they're taken away from you, and you're beginning to question everything. You're beginning to look around you and think, well, what do I have? If this is taken away, what joy do I have? The invitation of the psalm, the invitation of scripture is to come before God, perhaps for the very first time in your life. And you may have lived a long life to this point, but to come to him because it is never too late to come before God and say, and to be still and to know that he is God. You are a creature. He is the creator. And it is incumbent upon you as a creature that you acknowledge the greatness of God and his sovereignty over our lives. It is our calling as creatures to come into his presence and to be still and to worship. And ultimately, the invitation is come and see Jesus. Come and see this one who died for you. Come and recognize that he loves you. See the marks in his hands and in his side. See the emblems of his sacrifice, of his love for you. And know that he is for you, but come and bow because he is Lord and you are not and you've been trying to rule your life up to this point 
You've been trying to be the master of your own destiny up to this point, and you cannot master your destiny. Come and bow before the one who does master our destinies. Come and bow before Christ. I want to invite you to do that. The psalm promises us this peace with God as refuge, this joy as God as the river of our delights. And it promises us this profound sense of stillness when we contemplate God's power in history. Let us pray. It may be appropriate for you to bow your head now. It may be appropriate for you to find a place on your knees. And maybe for the first time to be able to say to Jesus, your Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we want to confess that it is very hard to see the situation we're in and the circumstances of our individual lives through the lens of faith. But your word has spoken to our hearts and you've summoned us and you've said, come behold the works of the Lord. And you said, be still and know that I am God. And Lord, it's our calling and our duty as creatures to respond to the word of the creator and to come in obedience to you now. We pray and I pray, Lord, that as we approach you, Lord, that your stillness will rest upon our hearts. Not that we can necessarily answer every question or mitigate every disaster or prevent the ends that we don't want to see. It's not necessarily that bad stuff won't happen, but Lord, that we will come to you and say you are good and you reign and you rule. I pray for those, Lord, who are listening who are not Christian and who have never, never said Jesus is Lord, who've never bowed the knee to you. Lord, I pray that this will not feel to them just as a conquest, though it is that in one sense, you conquer our hearts. But it will feel more like a victory. It'll feel more like a privilege. It'll feel more like a liberating freedom to be able to say, I don't need to lead my life anymore. I'm an incompetent ruler in any case. Jesus Christ, come and be my ruler. So save us afresh, we pray. Go on saving us, Lord. That we all have the stillness, which is the gift of God, in our hearts. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.